before God and brings us under condemnation. And so we need a Savior who can forgive our sins and take away our punishment. And you know what? That's absolutely right. But that is not the point of Ephesians chapter 2. It's not, that, it's not what we need. The, the, the need we find here. We need a Savior. It's not just that we are in the doghouse with God and need to be forgiven. We need a Savior because we are in the morgue. That's what the context is saying here. In the doghouse, you might whimper. You might say you're sorry. You might make some good resolutions. You might decide to cast yourself on the mercy of God. But what can you do if you're in the morgue? Nothing. Once you understand that the sin has killed you dead, then you can understand the blessing and the power of salvation through God. Because you see, we play it being a Christian, don't we? I'm talking to everybody. Kids, you know, we like to blame the kids. But I watch adults playing, playing it being a Christian. Oh, they say they are. But they're just playing it. You can tell by, they'll say, they'll let out a string of cuss words. And then they'll say, oh, pardon my French. Well, there's a miracle that's going on because I understood every word they said. Isn't it a miracle? Pardon their French. I didn't know French talked that way. That's awesome. How do you drive? Oh, boy, the anointing's leaving me now. How do you drive? Is a testimony of your relationship with Christ. Trust me, I've slowed down a lot after experiencing what my wife did a few weeks ago. And the fact that she could walk away from that, that accident and not be hurt any more than she is. Oh, trust me, I've slowed down. I even put a seatbelt on now. I used to never wear a seatbelt. I always complained, well, they just don't fit around me very well. Now that I've lost a little weight, I can't really complain about that anymore. But you know what? I'd put it around even if it didn't fit. Because that's what saved Cindy. Was having her seatbelt on. I'll guarantee you that's what saved her. But you know, we need a Savior. And what caused us to be in the morgue? Well, according to this text, trespasses, our sins have killed us. Trespasses focuses on our actions and their result. We've made a false step, lapsed from righteousness, deviated from the standards set by God. Sins focuses on us. We miss the mark. We miss it morally and we're inherently offensive to God. We stand guilty before God. In verse 2, we are called the disobedient. It literally means that we are called sons of disobedience. And you girls are going, well, it doesn't say daughters of disobedience. Trust me, you're included here. And it emphasizes that disobedience is in our spiritual DNA. In verse 3, it shows us the outworking of that. Look what it says. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. We formerly lived there, but some of us still are. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> but some of us still are. We struggle with our thought process. We struggle with looking at things we shouldn't look at. 
We struggle at reading things we shouldn't read. We struggle at going to movies we shouldn't go to. We struggle at watching television shows. If you're from Texas, last night wasn't a good night for you. If you're from Oklahoma and you're a supporter in Norman or Stillwater, last night was a great night for you. If you're Brother Russell and think you're going to win today in fantasy football, it's not a good day for you. He's just walking in. I thought I'd throw that at you. Unbelief ruins the family tree. It's part of our sinful nature. On our own, we are living dead. We have no living spiritual nature to incline us to do anything for the glory of God. And we don't rely on His power. Our lives are bent away from God and are lived in defiance of His rightful place as God in our lives. Separated from the source of life, we're dead. Dead to righteousness. Dead to holiness. Dead to obedience. Dead to faith. It's my unregenerate state. It's not a pretty picture, but i got to tell you, there's more. Unless we are rescued, we will be dominated by the devil. Because in verse 2 it says that when Jesus came to our rescue, we walked according to this worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Three key statements you find right here in this verse. Number one, there is a being who rules over the power of the air, that atmospheric area. Number two, this being is a spirit who works in the, uh, in the hearts and the lives of lost people. And number three, the result is that lost people live their lives in tune with this evil age when it says, you previously walked according to this worldly age. Paul had to constantly remind the believers to leave the old life and come to the new life. Leave the old life and come to the new life, much like preachers today do. I've got to remind you all the time that you've not arrived yet. You've still got a place to go. You've still got a ways to go. You still have striving to make. You still need to get there. And those who are complacent sit back and go, I wish you'd get off of that. A preacher showed up to do a revival. You remember what those are. We don't see them very much anymore. But a preacher showed up to do a revival and for a week, uh, a week-long revival. And on the third night, he was still preaching out of the same text that he used on Sunday. They were going all the way to Friday. That was You just don't see those anymore. But he started on Sunday and he started out of John 3.16. First, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have ever, everlasting or eternal life. Sunday night he preached the same text. Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. And finally somebody going out said, Preacher, when are you going to give us something new? He said, as soon as you get this one right, I'll move on to the next one. Amen. So don't come in here thinking every Sunday, boy, whew, yeah, I'm here, God. guess we can start now. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'll, I'll get up. I'll, uh, I'll make the preacher's day by showing up at church today. Make my day. Come every day. It would make my day if I could see you every day. If you'd come spend 30 minutes a day right here in front of the cross, it would just make my day. If you'd come spend 30 minutes every day right here at the cross, 
And for 29 of those minutes, if you'd pray for me, that God would keep me strong and keep me holy and keep me from sin. If you would come and spend 30 minutes every day doing that, whoo, what an awesome thing that would be. Well, preacher, I, I don't think I can knock out 30 days out of my day now. I'm telling you. You can't knock 30 minutes out. How about five? Can you give us five? See, God can take your five and do so much with it, can't He? Whoo! Can you just do five? Hey, brother, preacher, I can pray for you while I'm driving to work. Awesome. Pray for me. Keep your eyes open, though. I don't want you to close your eyes praying. Then you'll blame me and I'll get sued because, well, I was praying for the preacher. I had my head down, my eyes closed. Unless we are rescued, we will be dominated by the devil. A few questions come to my mind from verse 2. What is the heir and who's the ruler over it? Well, the heir is the jurisdiction in which this ruler spoken of in verse 2 has been authorized to function. Now think about that. Think about it. Air is where we live. It's everywhere we go. It's the substance in which we swim. We can exist only minutes without it. And that's Paul's point is that this ruler can get at mankind everywhere. The whole inhabited world is the domain of his power, subject to his influence, captive to his rule. So, who is this prince? Well, it's not hard to figure out. Matthew 12, 24 calls Satan the ruler of demons. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul calls him the God of this age. Jesus refers to him in John 12, 14 and 16 as the ruler of this world. In Luke 4, 6, Satan tempts Jesus with that same idea when he says, I will give you their, give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. He's so stupid, he doesn't understand. That the cross crushed his head. He loses. University of Texas thought they had it won last night. And old Graham Harrell steps back and he fires that pass to the outside shoulder of, of Crabtree, that receiver, who comes down inbounds with it. He was just going to get it and step out of bounds so their kicker could kick a field goal and they win. But he comes down and thinks, I think I can score. So he pulls the ball down among two defenders, spins down, doesn't go out of bounds and scores a touchdown. And they ask him after the game, how'd that feel? I wanted him to say, I'm just kind of disappointed, you know. He couldn't even talk. She said, how does that feel? He goes, like he could he still couldn't believe that they won. I want you to know that when Satan comes and tries to tempt you and tries to take you down, you stand by the cross and just put your hand on it and smile. He can't stay near you. And when your friends want to pull you down and pull you away, go stand by the cross and just hug it. They'll leave. They will leave you alone. Because Satan can't stand the blood of Jesus. Satan can't get near the blood of Jesus. It crushes him. Genesis 3.15 The head of the serpent is crushed. By the resurrection, by the cross. During the age, the dominant themes and motifs and moods we encounter are under the control of Satan. Unbelievers, he's masked them, he's blinded them so they can't see the light of the gospel, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 
He compounds the hopelessness of lost people by preventing them from seeing anything glorious in the gospel of Christ. Oh, we need a deliverer who is stronger than this prince. Who can open my eyes to see where real life, life with God is. And let alone, apart from such a Savior, Jesus says to me what He said to the Pharisees in John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. When you and I decide to sin, we have looked at the cross and said, No, you must say, preacher, you shouldn't be spitting at the cross. Is that not what we do every time we decide to sin instead of standing strong in the power of God? Can I get an amen? Oh, you better say amen because you're guilty if you don't. Don't sit there in your arrogance and think, well, I would never do that. Oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. Let me switch places with you. All right. You see, we're lost. Dead to God. Under the influence of Satan, whose goal is to kill, to steal, and destroy. Oh, and one more thing. Unless we are rescued, we are destined for hell. The end of verse 3 captures this when it says that we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Some translations call us children of wrath, they again point to the fact that the wrath of God belongs to us the way a parent belongs to a child. Wrath is ours as naturally as we are our parents' offspring. I kid kids sometimes when they, I introduce them to somebody and I'll say, this is such and such a child, and I'll say, but don't hold that against the child. Because the child didn't have any choice who their parents were going to be. It's, it's a laugh. It's just a joke. Just be easy, man. Goodness sakes. Guys, are so, some of you haven't woke up yet, have you? All right. Anytime I read that a biblical scholar or a newspaper editorialist or hear someone on the street say, a loving God would never be so cruel as to create an everlasting torture chamber to which he, just, he ascribes those that bother him, I just, I just remember and realize how blinded people are. How blinded Satan has created in us. How much blindness he's created in us. But you've got to understand something. Apart from the life-changing rescue of the Savior, every move we make is disgustingly offensive to our eternal Maker. By right of creation, He owns us. And yet every choice we make defies His possession of us. Our thoughts are shaped by plans that have no reference to Him. Our wills follow the lead of the world, the flesh, the devil. Our hearts are a citadel of godless desires. Our religious efforts and good deeds are ultimately self-serving, gaining us congratulations here, and we hope earning us something from God. But our self-centered motives corrupt everything. Sin saturates our being. You and I have not arrived yet. How do I know that? The guy that wrote most of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote most of the New Testament, did he not? You can all of you say amen? He did. If you didn't know that, well, he did. And yet, at the end of his life, 
at the end of his life, and I can't think of anybody that God had blessed more, used more, touched more people than they did the Apostle Paul, than he did with the Apostle Paul. And yet at the end of his life, he said, I have not attained it yet. I am pressing on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, if that guy hadn't attained it yet, well, who are you and I to think that we've arrived? Well, I don't need to go to church, preacher. I don't need to go to church. I can still be godly and not go to church. You sure can. You sure can. Well, I don't need a good bunch of hypocrites down there at the church. Well, just come join us. You'll fit right in. Well, I don't need to go to church. All you do is ask for money. Not really. I mean, we don't. We don't. Well, I, you, just fill in the blank. You'll give me 101 excuses why you can't come. But what is great about coming? Is encouragement, isn't it? Isn't it great to be here? That hug and howdy thing, you, you, you guys take that serious, don't you? I mean, some of you just start walking, pressing flesh, look like you're running for office or something. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Hugging each other. It's great. Some of you don't get hugged all week, I can tell. Because, <laughs> man, when somebody comes ready to hug you, you're ready to hug them back. And some of you are resistant to hugging. You stand there like this, don't hug me, don't hug me, don't hug me. And then watch you over the next few weeks, you start hugging too. Because see, if you, if you stand there not hugging and everybody hugs you, then eventually you go, okay, okay, and you give in. That's the way it works. That's what kids do, isn't it? I've never yet seen an adult, not when a child runs up to them like this, that that adult go, get away from me, you stinking kid. I don't want anything to do with it. No, we're just like them. And we, we lose all sense of reason, all sense of purpose. Our whole vocabulary changes when we're around little kids. They come running at us like this. We go, and we get them up in our arms. You, go, you see, that's Hebrew for I love you. You didn't know you knew Greek and Hebrew, but you do. And they just look at you. They don't know any different because all they know is just to love you like this, right? We have to teach them how to be ugly and nasty and mean. We have to teach them how to put your arms down. Don't you, don't you hug anybody. It's a dangerous world out there. Don't you touch anybody. Don't anybody touch you. Pretty soon the kid's going to, going to first grade, going, I'm scared to death. And what does, the, what does the first grade teacher do? Well, come here, honey. Ah! You know? Yeah. Then they get to be teenagers and they're hugging all the time. Get away from it! Not us, so they don't hug your parents. Any of you notice that? Teenagers don't like to hug parents. I love it. Yeah, well, okay, yeah, yeah. Now let me out a block away. I'm going to walk in. I don't want you to let me out. I love that one commercial, that kid... Kids coming out after school and he's standing there in his 60s. I said, hey, buddy! You know, he's walking over there. That's the way we do with God, isn't it? God's calling us. God's calling us. We kind of duck our head and walk away. No matter how you sugarcoat it, we're an enemy of God, guilty of cosmic treason, a pariah of His holiness a violator of His standards, a rebel against His provision of a Savior. Our very existence blasphemes God. And what we learn from Scripture is that God would be unrighteous if He looked with indifference on our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7-9 through 9 says, this will take place at the, 
That's the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with His powerful angels taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of everlasting destruction away from the Lord's presence and from His glorious strength. People that are lost need to find Christ. And when you and I don't say anything, are we not guilty in the same? Jesus tells us of a day when God will divide all humanity into two groups. In Matthew 25, we do not want to hear the words, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We want to hear him say, Enter in, you good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear the other words, do you? But you see, there's going to be a lot of Christians walking around wearing the name Christian <laughs> but aren't living the life. It's easy to say it. It's easy to say that you love somebody, but do you show it? Do you show it? I love to watch uh, Russell and Tanya when they're together. They're just so slap happy in love. It's unbelievable. I keep thinking, oh, they're young. They've only been at it a little while. Pretty soon they'll get over that. You know, they well, they do. Watch older couples that have been married a long time. They don't look like that at each other. I mean, they look at each other. You know. <laughs> Somebody said, you don't look at your wife when you preach. I said, for a reason. <laughs> Boy, yeah. She's back there sharpening knives as I'm preaching, you know. So do you have it nailed down in your life that Jesus is the Lord of your life? Do you have that nailed down that He's the Master of your life? Do you have such a love relationship with Him that you, you can't wait to see Him? You can't wait to get with Him? You can't wait to be around Him? You can't wait to be around His people because being around His people is where He is. Yeah. Man, that's what's exciting. That's what's fun. It's being around God's people. You got that nailed down in your life yet? I want you to understand, God is here to rescue you. He, he may already have rescued you and you've slipped away from His rescue. Come back. Come back. He's got the lifeline thrown out there. And, and we need a Savior. Oh, friend, we need a Savior. This world today needs a Savior. It's not going to be Congress that saves us. It's not going to be the next president that saves us. It's not going to be the world European market that saves us. It's not going to be the one world economy. It's not going to be the bailout program. It's not going to be whether they resend your mortgage or not. Wouldn't it be great you could handle the mortgage crisis, just tell everybody they don't owe anything anymore? That would solve the whole crisis, wouldn't it? Everybody that owns a house now, you own it. It's yours outright. Toop done. Woo! That would instantly create... Wealth in our country. Amen? Whoo, man, that would be exciting, wouldn't it? I'm telling you what, the greatest bailout program that ever came is found at the cross. He's bailed us from our sin. He's loved us enough to die on the cross for our sin. Every 12-step program there is begins right here. I am powerless to change. I can't help myself. I need the help of someone outside myself, someone higher than me, wiser than me, and stronger than the influences that dominate my life. 
And while most 12-step programs don't go ahead and name who that higher power is, you and I know who it is. It's Almighty God. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you here not knowing Him as your Savior? Are you here having met Him, responded to Him, but just kind of pushed it aside? Are you here in fear? You see, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, it says in Scripture. Amen? So if you're sitting there a little bit afraid of what God might do to you in hell, good. The Bible says don't fear Him who can destroy your body in hell. Fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So when you die, that means the soul does something, right? That's what that means. So I think you better get on the side of God. You might be sitting there going, man, I'm not really sure. Then now's the time for you to come to the cross. The great news is that your rescue is waiting. Your rescue is waiting. Father, we ask you this morning to move among your people. God, to do a mighty work in each of them. Father, would you, would you and you alone touch their life and their heart? Would you reassure them of your presence. God, would you reassure them that just one look to your cross will bring you into their life. Oh, Father, would we have courage every day to say no to the influence of the Prince of the Air and say yes to the influence of the Holy Spirit pricking our heart. Oh, God, we need you today. Oh, God, we need you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing together. You have a decision. Make it this morning.